0: Welcome to Hoof on the Till, our weekly look at all things racing. Helen Thomas and the mighty Max Presnell with you. And, Max, what a weekend we've got ahead of us, elite racing in a couple of states and no less a star than the wonderful Mayor Maccabi Diva, who won three Melbourne Cups, let us never forget, and she'll be there at headquarters on Saturday for the running of the Group 1 Maccabi Diva Stakes.
1: Yes, Helen, uh, popping off an intriguing period for racing and, of course, we're going to deal with nature strip and intriguing figures regarding his remarkable earning powers. And then, of course, on the racing front, we've got the controversial ride of Craig Williams on Giga Kick in the McEwen at Moonee Valley last Saturday. By gee, hasn't that created some turbulence. Then on the Sydney front, we have a later start for track gallops regarded as historic. And, of course, we've got a a pressing issue, one that you'll want to uh, discuss at some length, regarding a Racing Victoria report.
0: Well, that's right, Max. Racing Victoria's uh, Integrity Commissioner's report, which was handed down a couple of days ago, makes for pretty grim reading. It details decades of physical and sexual abuse and also tables nine recommendations for the three codes of racing to follow. So it'll be interesting to see how this progresses. But as we have touched on, the very best of racing should be on show this weekend, with one of the best mayors presiding over proceedings at Flemington for the race named in her honour, the Maccabi Diva Stakes. Premier trainer Chris Waller has three of the seven horses facing the starter for this Group 1 event, and I'm delighted to say that he's with us now. Chris, welcome to Hoof on the Till.
2: Great to be on Hoof on the Till, and good to hear your voice, as it is with Mr Presnells.
0: Let's go to Flemington, of course, headquarters for so many, if not necessarily Mr Presnell. You've got three runners in the Group 1 Maccabi Diva Stakes. It's kind of Maccabi Diva day, really, because she's going to be there on course. How are you looking at this race, Chris? How important it is it for these three horses?
2: Uh, it's a very important race, yeah. It's a great day and it's a big effort to get Maccabi Diva there because these horses, when they're in the twilight of their lives, um, yeah, respect needs to be given to transport and taking them out of their normal environment, but it's a yeah, it's it's great to have them there because she was so such a, a revelation in terms of Australian stayers and fighting off the European imports, not only once, but doing it three times, as among the other races she's won. So she was the black caviar and winks of her era, and she she's a big part of history, so that's great. So the race itself, um we've got three completely different horses. We've got Princess Grace, who's had two Group one seconds already this preparation. Um, An American horse um, found great form here in Australia, and she looks to be a horse that'll keep the better horses honest. We've got Ossipinko, who's a Colt, who I think deserves to be a group one winner, but hasn't done it yet. So he gets his chance Saturday from a good draw. And we've got a Melbourne Cup hopeful in Francesco Guardi. He's second up for the preparation. He's one of the Melbourne Cup favourites. He's by the amazing Frankel. And to the listeners, uh, what Frankel did on the race course was was very, very good among the elites that has ever graced the turf. But what he's doing in the stallion barn could even be better. He's got some amazing statistics of... um, group enlisted winners of around the 20% mark, which is almost unheard of. So not only did it on the racetrack, he's doing it in the barn. So we've got one by Frankel and Francesco Guardi running on Saturday as well.
1: Chris, um, Francesco Guardi interests me greatly because um, I think he would have been one of the favourites for the Melbourne Cup last year had he raced after his Moonee Valley Cup win. Obviously the theory would be he'll be an even better horse this preparation
2: yeah, he, he did come up a bit unannounced last last spring. It seemed to be when he got to Melbourne on his opposite leg to the Sydney leg that he just jumped out of the ground. He should have won the Bart Cummings. He was very unlucky. And then when he won the Moonee Valley Gold Cup by three or four lengths, yeah, he had announced himself. So, look, the Melbourne Cup's not getting any easier. It's tough on horses, but you need a tough horse to win it. And I think now... As an Australian six-year-old, he is that type of horse. Just switching our
1: point of attack for a moment, um, the track times in Sydney racing, it's been described as, as as historic, have been moved to a later starting time. Now, how do you think this will affect you and how, how do you think this will affect the industry?
2: I think it'll only be a positive. Um, it will affect people in the short term. It's very hard for people to change that have been doing it throughout their lives. I've been doing it for 30 years or since I left school. I don't know anything better but getting up before everybody else in the house, going to bed before everybody in the house. Um, And it can run 365 days a year. It's a relentless job. It's a tough job and it can be quite lonely. But I shouldn't be complaining. It's been very good to me. But the ones I do care for are the ones that are the strappers, uh, the ones that do have families that are young, and, yeah, they're constantly tired, getting up at 3 in the morning. Our stable starts at 4, and most people these days have to drive half an hour or so to get to work. Cost of living is getting higher. Living in the cities, such as Randwick and Rose Hill or Parramatta, um, it, it's expensive. So most people are driving 30 to 40 minutes to get to work. Therefore, they've got to do it going home. Um, tiredness, fatigue, you've heard it all, but it is real. Um, And it does affect young people. And quite often, racing can be a job until you find a better job. So there's a huge labour shortage at the moment. Employment's at the lowest levels it's been. And we're finding it tough to get new people, young people. And there's some amazing talent out there that we're missing out on. So I think it's a positive for the majority. And I think it's a big thing heading towards the future. The
1: point that surprises me is that they're saying that later opening times, now Royal Randwick, it's 5 a.m., Rose Hill Gardens, 5.30 a.m., Warwick Farm, 5 a.m. I thought they might have gone a tad later.
2: I think that was the push, but there's been, look, I've been trying for years and they said no luck. The push to push those tracks back an hour and a half, I think was just starting to get to a minority rather than a majority. And I think they saw it as okay. Let's try this one. And if it's working and everybody can see the positives of it, we can go later. Because you're right. Meaningful change would be six o'clock. Um, and it's the, the the most common question I get asked is not not what good horses you train. It's why do you start so early? Or uh, and that's from other trainers around the world and just the everyday public in Australia. They can't work out why we start so early. And, Yes, there's little reasons here or there, but I think quality of life and making sure um, people are safe and not getting fatigued is the key.
0: Chris, it's it's almost as if Australian racing has been dragged kicking and screaming to a degree into contemporary life in the last couple of weeks with the moving of the track times, even a little bit, as you've described, and of course in the last couple of days uh, the report that's been handed down by the Racing Integrity Commissioner for Racing Victoria, generating headlines like, report finds decades of violence and sexual abuse allowed to go unchecked in Victoria's racing industries. I mean, obviously a long time coming. This report seems to go back nearly 50 years and yet a third of these complaints are sort of in the last couple of years, I think from 2020 on. Is that your reading of the situation? Is racing almost being forced to actually catch up with Contemporary life, contemporary lifestyle.
2: Well, it came as a shock to me, and I feel for those victims because that's just not on at all. And regardless of what industry you're in, we see it. We see it in the parliaments. We see it in every every industry. Um, It's shocking, and again, you just can't stress how those victims must feel and how their lives can be affected. So, it's pure and simple. Whatever industry it's in, it's got to be addressed. A little bit, a little bit surprised that. It was just put out in the papers. Um, It's good that it's out there now, but I'm surprised that action hasn't been taken. Like you said, if it's going back 50 years, um, maybe things were put under under the carpet back then. Um, But in recent years, there's no excuse. It should have been addressed before they had a report. So, um, yeah, it's shocking, I feel, for those victims, and it's got to be nipped in the bud, and racing's got to be... Yeah, pure, clean and staying within community standards from horse welfare to the people that work in the industry to gambling, you name it. We've got to stay with the times.
0: The report itself a number of times mentions the culture of silence across the industry that is, and I'm quoting here, underpinned by an historical and widespread tacit discouragement of reporting. And when you read that, it does make you think, is this just a Victorian problem? Or is it really something that should be looked at nationally?
2: Well, it should be should be looked at nationally, of course. And I guess that would that would be made easier if there was a national body. But I'm sure every industry would be looking hard at themselves, and 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 if they're in in the administration side of things and got integrity and compliance as uh, their main their main um, factor, I guess um, it'll be sorted out straight away. But uh, yeah it's a, it's not ideal. I've got a daughter and a son. they're both both young and um yeah, the last thing you want is is bringing someone into that type of environment. but as an employer of a lot of staff, gee, we've got um processes in place where they don't even have to they don't obviously have to come to me. they can report to, I know race in New South Wales are so quite proactive with the way they um put out newsletters. Uh, they make sure we've got posters up in our stables to any har- harassment. And this has been for a long time, that there's a hotline to ring and and that's how it should be. There should be nobody scared to come out and tell the truth.
1: Helen, this is a worldwide problem. This isn't a Victorian problem or a New South Wales problem. It's a worldwide problem. And if you think it's bad now, go back 50 years ago. That doesn't make it any, any better now. But this will, as far as Personnel in racing a concern. I do think Chris has made the point that, particularly in New South Wales, don't know about Victoria, look, there's, there's just so many areas where people with complaints can go to. And when I think of the slave labour of previous generations, look, they got it pretty good today and they'll get it better. But can I get her onto a happier subject? Nature Strip. Now, Nature Strip. I think we've got figures to say average 471,000 for every start he had. And uh, I would say that um, nature strip going for so long and being so fast for so long was Chris Waller's greatest training achievement better than weeks because put it this way with Winks he had more to deal with, but uh, uh, with, with nature strip. No, what a wonderful horse. And we've lost this headline horse now, but Chris, the telling question is, what is going to be your next headline?
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you're always always looking about the next the next investment, Max, and that's the way it should be. Um, but yeah, Royal Ascot he, he was was our, our crowning moment with Nature Strip to take him from Australia to the opposite hemisphere, different seasons, uh, taking on supposedly the best sprinters in the world. We were welcomed with open arms pre-race. Um, it was an amazing theatre, and to see him come storming down that straight, a long way ahead of his rivals, it was really special. And the build-up to get him there was was great, with some great wins, uh, Melbourne, Sydney, and then to cap it off up there, it was it was really special, and only done by an amazing horse himself. And as you said, longevity was his key. Um, it was a fine line. It was like. Usain Bolt running in a four hundred meter race. Often we'd overdo it, and we would we would come off second best or not too far away from the winner. But if we got it right on the day, he could out sprint any other horse in the world.
0: What sort of character was Nature Strip? You know, he was for the fast
2: and and um, fierce horse that he was. He was a he's just an He is just an absolute gentleman. Very. Uh, very gentle around the stables with the staff and uh, on the training tracks he was pretty relaxed yeah but put him in the barriers and when they opened wow he was just a he was a tiger so um, yeah it was a relief to, to, to see him retired and and retire sound maybe we brought him back one two more one too many preparations but that's another story he's we, we all decided on it but most importantly he's fit healthy and as mr president touched on we've got to find one to replace him so where does that come from young horses it's it's an amazing part of racing you just don't know where the next one's coming from i wouldn't have guessed winks would have been anywhere near where she was she went to queensland just to win a group one race to think that that will be her main main win but whatever or what followed on from her was was just unbelievable even very elegant to win a melbourne cup i know mr president was one of her biggest fans but yes we thought she was a great horse but to win a melbourne cup at the end of her career was just something special so you really don't know where the next one's coming from and we've got a big team so we've got more chances than most i respect that but we'll give them every chance to find the next star of australia
0: chris Wall on hoof on the tilt Okay, let's look at those quite extraordinary figures in relation to Nature Strip and what our next guest describes as the astonishing returns that sprinters can win on the track here in Australia. Bren O'Brien writes the tri weekly column By the Numbers for ANZ Bloodstock News. And he's with us now. Bren, welcome to Hoof. Thanks, Helen. Good to be here. Now, one of the things you mentioned in this rather extraordinary article you wrote, I think about a week ago, is that In his last year of racing, really, between 2021 and 2022, Nature Strip became the first horse in Australian racing to earn over $10 million in a single season. And in a sense, that's really indicative, isn't it, of the era we're living in?
3: Absolutely. I mean, if you look back through, and I point out in that article that you know, the top 10 earning Australian trained horses in a season, so you know, the most lucrative seasons for a horse have all occurred in the Everest era since 2017-18. So yeah, we're obviously we've seen a massive trend towards that. And I think what's notable is yeah, you know, we've always always known about prize money and it, it's increasing in value. But if you look at the fact that um you know Nature Strip has finished with you know $20.8 million second second only behind winks in terms of overall earnings, and that's 12.8 million more than what Black Caviar, you know, who won five more group ones. Uh, races than him you know just a decade ago so it's amazing how quickly this has changed and obviously the Everest has changed a lot of things but it's across the board Helen six horses won over a million dollars last year in Australia without actually winning a race extraordinary when you think back to you know you guys and and, uh, you know I can remember you know Kingston Town becoming the first horse to win a million dollars in Australia and it was a a milestone that it's 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 not I'm not saying it's a meaningless mark I'm sure it isn't for the owners but it's, it's certainly indicative of how things have changed.
1: Bren, things have changed. Certainly, the, the value of the dollar has diminished. Uh, you also pointed out Farlap's earnings, I think, in his uh, his halcyon spring and how that compares. But I don't know whether you can compare prize money then with prize money today.
3: I think what, what you're able to do, I suppose, if we sit there and think, I mean, A, we try to get ahead around the fact that you know, Farlat won 10 of his 11 starts between August 30 and, you know, the last, the first Saturday or second Saturday in November when he went, completed the four wins in a week at Flemington. We try to wrap our heads around that and work out roughly what he would have earned in that period. I mean, he would have won, earned $11.7 million uh, had he won those same races. Now, I've done a bit of projections and here or there or whatever. So what we, are I guess what I'm trying to do is you look at the race record of those horses and you're trying to work out what, what they, you know, you look at the fact that, you know, Kingston Town, as I mentioned before, would have won at least another 16 million dollars in prize money had he been running around today and won those races. Not saying he's the same horse and he could beat those horses. But if you what we can do is just transport that prize money from today and put it back. And I think the interesting thing is, Max, if you look at it, even if you look at Winx, who, you know, retired in 2019, which is four years ago, had she won all those group one races that she won, you know, that extraordinary record 25 group one races that she had, had she won it on last year's prize money levels she would have won an extra $8 million. So we're talking in the last five years this has changed and the value of the dollar hasn't changed that much in that time and that's quite an extraordinary uh, growth rate.
0: And, Bren, what does it say about, well, not so much the value of achievement but the listing of achievement of these horses?
3: Yeah, I mean, people will say, you know, you can't count prize money for horses, and certainly we don't do that um, in, in, in Australia. We don't sit there and say, oh, know, yeah, this horse is better than that horse, it's earned more money in different areas. We know the difference. We understand that. The article's not about that. But I guess when you put it in the context, Helen, that what's happened in the last five years has also happened at a time of enormous disruption to the way that Australian racing is structured, um, and obviously the pattern, Australian pattern, you know, which is obviously our schedule of group one group two group three enlisted races our uh, black type races that you know has made up has not update, been updated in australia since 2019 and you know that's due to the political i guess issues within australian racing and yes. you know, the patent committee being unable to meet because they can't agree and whatever but what that means is the only thing that's changed in terms of ranking our best horses in the last four or five years is Prize money increases, and these enormous prize money increases, and these enormous pop up races, and that's great for like owners. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing necessarily, but what it does, it does distort our view of the past, and it does make this era very difficult to judge if we don't have that same level of growth going forward.
0: So, in a sense, and I think you say this in this um, particular column, it's rewriting history in a way. Well, if yeah, it, where we can't where we can't judge
3: group one races and all those sort of things, it becomes a, a point where you try to you're trying to compare horses from different areas becomes very difficult and you have to do a fair bit of maths as I have to try to work out what that means. And so, you know, if you sit there and, you know, sit the horse like Marzu, and good on the connections for it, but you know, he won $4.6 million without winning a race last year. Um, I mean, that's, that's quite phenomenal. And it's great. You know, it's a great, great for them, but it doesn't give us a context of where he sits in, in, in the horses of history because, but where group one races haven't, aren't being upgraded or changed and the patterns are not evolving to suit that, it makes it difficult. So I think it, yeah, at some point, there'll be a tipping point and hopefully the parties can get their heads together and revamp the pattern because, you know, in the end, the pattern is, you know, the thing that, that will judge the greatness of horses over time. And that's what it was designed for.
1: You've stressed the point about the pop-up races, particularly the Everest, uh, and how the industry has changed. And again, you were saying that the, the Patlers committee has got to adjust to this. It's very difficult to see that coming about. And so it it would appear that uh, your price money assessments are the the only thing we've got to go on at present as far as assessing the the greatness of horses.
3: Indeed, that's right. Yeah. And that becomes down to discretion. You know, the fact that a race that didn't exist six years ago, seven years ago is now worth $20 million. It's extraordinary. Um, and the, and the nature of those races. I mean, the Everest is a is a complex race because of the slot holder concept and how much of the money actually goes back to the um, the owners. So is it a twenty million dollar race? And there's an argument to say it's, it's 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 worth less than that because the way the slot holders work and the way that works. That's that's all by the by. But that prize money still goes straight to the to the top line of 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 these horses. You know, so you've got. Yeah, a horse like Giga Kick, for example, you know, who's before last week, I think I worked out he just earned just under a million dollars per start. It's quite extraordinary when you think about the opportunities available to these horses. I mean, my part of my job is looking at the history of, you know, good horses and comparing them and and the lack of group one status uh, attached to these elite races like the Everest and the Golden Eagle and All-Star Mile and these sorts of things, where I have to every time, and you know what it's like as a Geno two Max when you write you know, you're writing. You know, he won. He's won X amount of Group One races. Oh, and an Everest. It's, it's 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 kind of frustrating because we know that in any other world, the Everest is a Group One race because of the quality of horses that are contesting it. So, look, yeah, you know, I'm remaining optimistic that one day, you know, the powers that be can get their heads together and go, all right, let's have a look at this pattern. Let's look at the way we structure things. Let's look at what we do best, um, and let's revamp how we do things and actually start talking about. The language which has served us quite well for a considerable amount of time and you know, 50 years or so around this pattern around group one, group two, group three, and why that matters, and why it matters to the bloodstock industry, and why it matters to the value of thoroughbreds long term, and why it matters to the story of thoroughbred racing.
1: Do you think that racing is as healthy with all this prize money being sprayed around and pop up races? and I, I can see the owners are doing well out of it, the trainers are doing well out of it, but. Is this a, a healthy trend?
3: Uh, I guess the question is whether it's sustainable. And I guess the other thing too, Max, is determining um, what success looks like for racing. Now, we've got a lot of uh, racing administrators that talk a lot about turnover and wagering and why that's driving things. But when you look at the challenges that, the, I guess, the great story and great history of, of, of horse racing and thoroughbred racing in Australia has, the challenges it has getting to the broader community, that's, you know, it's cut through is even less. So do we measure the fact... That the success of racing is the amount of money that people gamble on it and therefore the amount of money that owners get back? Or do we talk about other yeah, you know, other key um you know success points, which are around about the way that racing story is told and whether it can continue to be you know front of mind for 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 you know the Australian mindset? It's got a massive challenge in that regard. And in the end, if it becomes purely as it's been viewed probably in the last 10 to 15 years a gambling medium, the challenge is it becomes difficult to sustain over time and it becomes quite niche and and yeah I, I think that that's probably my my greater concern um, and that what it gets back to as I was saying before when you start talking rather than about you know large amounts of money per race you start talking about you know group one races and group two races and what what a group one horse does and where they sit in history and give that some context, that's how you start talking back to a broader public rather than just sitting there going, you know, Bill Smith's running around in this race for you know, $20 million. I mean, you know, it's, it's all good for headline grabs and all that sort of stuff, but I'm not too sure if it actually sustains the, the story that it needs to, you know, tell to the Australian Australian public what the Everest was able to do. And the Everest doesn't exist, you know, in isolation. It exists because there was a, there was a spot there for it in the market for racing New South Wales to seize, and they've done a good job because Australia needed a melbourne cup type sprint race because we are best at producing sprinters that's what we currently do now our the breeding industry and its preferences and all that sort of stuff has been going that way for a long time uh in terms of producing you know more horses that are are more suited to sprint distances and and moving away from stamina pedigrees um and that's a challenge for what has been historically our greatest race the melbourne cup and you know yeah that's a whole separate discussion so but I, i think that what the everest has done in a sort of I guess a brutal way, is is exposed the fact that racing needs to change its messaging around its history. Its history is really important. But then also that these, you know, that these sprinters now become the stars because they're the ones that have the homegrown stories, have got better stories to tell than a, you know, the, the lion's share of, of Melbourne Cup winners who are bred overseas and have very little backstory to them.
0: And Brent, having said all that, I, I was heartened to read in your list that one of the best star stayers in recent times is, of course, Maccabi Diva. She's won, I think this is right, $14.5 million through her deeds on the track. She's actually going to be at Flemington for the running of the Group 1 race named in her honour, the Maccabi Stakes, this weekend. I'm wondering how important you feel that is. I mean, having taken your point about sprinters are now the stars of the Australian turf, what about a horse like maccaiby Diva turning up to the races is that important in terms of telling this story of great racing feats
3: those horses which can transcend you know transcend the racing bubble they're relatively rare Now, Diva clearly did, you know it's a very memorable moment for me thinking about um when she won her third melbourne cup and and you know that was at such an extraordinary time and you know that that line from lee freeman take the smallest kid here and they won't see this again you know mm-hmm. and that was an extraordinary moment and, and and that they're the moments which racing legends are built on i think you know the challenge is it's great that they can get it to get mccabe deva to a racetrack uh and, and and have people there to go there she is and give her a pat you know and she was an amazing horse awesome. and see her living her life and doing her best you know almost 20 years after she was queen of the track um the challenge is how you continue to take those stories to people beyond racing and beyond the track at Flemington on Saturday. You know, the people still follow and still understand those horses and still value those horses. And I think, like, you know, places like Living Legends in in, in Melbourne are, are crucial to that, to yeah. be able to, you know, reconnect to those horses. Because great horses are great horses. I, you know, I was at a uh, the Asian Racing Conference in in um, Melbourne earlier this year and, you know, I spent three days talking to every Tom, Dick and Harry about the state of every racing. The highlight of my entire week was walking into a function and seeing Apache Cat just standing there and going over and Pigman a pat and and just being close to that horse. And I think that that connection to the horse remains at the heart of, you know, what, what's great about Australian racing. Bren, you
1: talk a lot about numbers, son, but by gee, the passion is there.
0: Max, as Bren O'Brien emphasised, Maccabi Diva is one of those horses that people outside the racing bubble still love and still remember winning her three Melbourne Cups. And I bet they remember our next guest too, her jockey, Glenn Boss, who'll also be at Flemington on Saturday for the running of the Group 1 Mackay Diva Stakes. This is kind of like the Mackay Diva edition of Hoof. But Glenn, good to have you back on the show. Good
4: morning, Helen. Nice to hear your voice. How you been?
0: Look, we've been good and we're galloping freely (laughs) and independently and... I'd imagine that's what um, this wonderful mare does in the paddock. I, I believe she's living down Geelong at the moment at Maccabi Diva Stud. Is that right?
4: Yes, she's living on the property that the that diva built, I say. Um, yeah, she's got, a, she's got a wonderful life down there. She gets cared for, as you can imagine. Um, but, yeah, I, I actually went and seen her, it'll be six months ago now, and she just looks unbelievable. Still running around the paddock, um, still the leader, still the dominant one. Um yeah, so I'm looking forward to seeing her at the races on Saturday.
0: And what's that going to be like, Lynn? I mean, how do people really respond to a horse like this? I mean, we are used to, particularly in Melbourne, used to, see, used to seeing horses like a patchy cat, like Efficient, like Martin Power when he was still with us, you know, going to the races and the response they seemed to get was genuinely one of wonder. Is, is that still the case?
4: Yeah, pretty well. Um, funny story, like when I was down there, you know, six months ago thereabouts, I had some pretty hard footballers who had really not much to do with racing, um, and they were very good at their own general at their own sports. But it's funny; they kind of knew that they were in the presence of someone great when they when they met her. You know, it's they kind of walked away, and but obviously, you know, I got to spend a bit of time with her, and it's quite emotional, you know, because you relive all those great memories. And um, but to see two hardened footballers kind of almost reduced to tears—that because. They kind of got that feeling that this is—we are in the presence of something very extraordinary. So, um, yeah, she does create that bit of a um, feeling in people. That's for sure.
0: And Bren was saying that's extraordinarily important these days when so many people just don't have an understanding or an appreciation of racing. And, and let's be honest, most people really don't bump into horses much anymore, do they?
4: No, there's no one that, that connection between man and man and beast, man and horse is is few and far between now, um, where, you know, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, you know, lots of kids rode ponies and horses and stuff, but now it's kind of a lost thing. But yeah, so when you when you do give someone an experience up close and personal, they're, they're really taken back by, number one, the size of the animal and how gentle they are, all those sort of things. And so it's it's good to watch actually people's reactions when you're just looking from the outside
0: in. Mm. And Glenn, as we say, she's 25 years old, Maccabee. This is, well, this is her third career. She's been a, a great race mare, a champion stayer. She's been a brood mare, and now she's an ambassador to racing.
1: Yeah, yeah, she's the gift that keeps giving. Glenn, what she gave me, and I'm very hard to please when it comes to champions. I've only seen a few. She is one. But the vision splendid that always comes to mind when I think of Makibi Diva is the Cox plate when she charged around the outside, eight wide, all those horses spread over the track. Now, whenever I think of a memory, that always seems to pop up about first. And then I think of the third Melbourne Cup. That's what these horses do. That's what champions do. You've touched on it. It's the aura. And I'm delighted that you've seen her recently and she hasn't lost it. She's still got that aura. And what, what a wonderful horse she was and is. And the memories she left. And that's the great thing about champions. You know, they're there with you. They're there with you all the time. And, uh, you know, she's, uh, I, still, uh, I still get a buzz when I think of those instances. And uh, when I think of, of G-Boss too, which um, I think I gave you the Balls of Steel Award for your third ride in the Melbourne Cup. And what a great effort it was. Uh, mate, let's get on to a, yeah. a less savoury subject Geiger kick in the McEwen at Mooney Valley last Saturday. Craig Williams has been criticised. What did you think of the ride?
4: I, I thought, you know, to be very honest, it was a poorly judged ride. Um, should Craig lose the ride over that? I, I suggest no. I, I actually had the privilege of actually galloping that horse about four weeks ago, Max, and he's a proper horse. And he's put on, he put on about 40 kilos from his uh, Brisbane campaign. So he's come back a big, strong, robust, gelding now. And I could tell in the, you know, that they went there thinking, hoping they could win, but they were going there knowing that he's going to very much need this run. So that's where the ill judgment came in. When the horse was slow to begin, Craig should have just went to plan C or D or whatever it is and said, okay, we're going to ride in conservative and I'm just going to let him rip home. If he's good enough, he wins. Uh, that's that's where it was wrong but um should he lose a road 100% no because you go back and look at all his rides on that horse
1: in the in the past i just get the impression that um craig went out last saturday and i think he said on this show that he thought that uh, geiger kick was a freak i think he rode him like a freak he rode him like a good thing And again, probably with the condition queries and everything like that, yes, a badly judged ride, yes, and he did hold his hand up and say it was a badly judged ride. Now, you know better than I do, if you get a second go at a ride like that, will you do things differently, particularly when you get beaten? Oh, you know, I mean, like I said, it was his
4: first up run. Yes, that could have affected his preparation going forward because, as you know, the most important run of a horse's preparation is generally their first run. Yeah, that's where you get it right. That sets the platform for the whole preparation. So that can, you know, if that goes wrong, um, that can really alter your whole preparation. But that's that's remained to be seen now. But um, you know what, Maxie, you've got to look at it. all things. It's sport, right? The most pure, perfect thing about racing in particular is its imperfections. It's no, it's far from perfect. So things happen. Horses can go wrong. Jockeys can get it wrong. Trainers can get it wrong too. Don't worry about that.
0: So just forgive and move on. Interesting points, Glenn, and, and you're right. A professional sport, uh, the criticism involved is is pretty robust, isn't it? It's tough, often tough and deeply personalised, not necessarily in this instance. I'm talking sort of more generally, but in a way it brings us back to where we started on the show. We were discussing that the report that the Racing Integrity Commissioner has handed down just in the last uh, couple of days in Victoria, looking at it in a positive way, that report has been handed down. There are nine recommendations that are obviously being taken very seriously, but I'm wondering what you think the most pressing issue facing racing in Australia is right now.
4: Being relevant in society, that's the biggest issue. And being relevant as a sport, that's the biggest issue we have. And how do we address that? I don't have the answer for that one because there's so many things you have, you have to address, but our sport to be relevant in 10 or 20 years, wow, I
1: think we've got a lot of work to do in front of us. Racing has got a lot of work to do, certainly to get even back on the footing of Maccabi Diva and, and Glenn Boss. I've got no doubt in the world we've got great horses coming on. We've got great jockeys and great trainers. They're all there, but it's how they're being presented, how are they're being accepted, and uh, there are problems, there are hurdles. Like this current report, but nevertheless, you know, for we who love the game, for what it is, you know, the, the horses, the people that make them, hopefully we can get back to where we were. And I don't think that's, that, that's unsurmountable, but we're going to need some pretty smart people to do it.
4: Alan, the, the thing that, the under, most underlying thing on our sport is the horse. It will always be the horse. It has always been the horse. And going forward, it will always be the horse. They're the athletes. They're the ones that put on the show. And obviously we've made some very big steps in the last, I'd say five years to show people and highlight that how cared for these animals are. And they're actually loved by everyone who has anything to do with them. So that's the message that's out there. And I think it's getting stronger. I think people are appreciative, appreciate of how much we do love the animal. Um, but at the end of the day, like I said, they're the ones that put on the show. We're just the lucky people that go along for the ride.
0: Glenn Boss, good to have you on Hoof on the Till for this ride today. Thank you so much for your time.
4: I'm looking forward to doing it again, Helen. Thank you, Max. It's always great to talk to you, my friend. You're bloody, what you've done for our sport your whole life is second to none. <laughs>